So let's pray and we're going to turn to the Bible. Father, thank you for everything that's been given tonight in the offering. We pray as we take this moment to dig into the Bible, I pray you'd speak to us. Reveal yourself. Uh, give us answers to really big questions, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so tonight we kick off a series that's going to take us 30 weeks right through to the beginning of December. Uh, and we're going to be journeying through this amazing book, the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. Epic book covers mega themes. So we're going to be, in this journey, we're going to be looking at things like marriage. We're going to be looking at the sin of Sodom. That's pretty controversial, but we're going to see what does the Bible say about that. We're going to be looking at the fall of man. We're going to be looking at how you deal with uh, race relations and and what does the Bible say about that sort of thing. We're going to be looking at the value of life and why we are pro-life as a church. What it means to be created in the image of God. The fall of man, this cataclysmic uh, event that took place because of our decisions. Why would God judge a world in a flood? And the whole journey of some of the heroes like Abraham and Joseph and learning lessons of forgiveness and great things. So it's, it's going to be a good journey. So be with us in the journey. Bring your friends with us in the journey. And uh, read your Bible as we go. You know, read in your own time some of the things we're looking at uh, on the Sundays. So here we are today. We're in Genesis chapter 1. This is a very controversial chapter. It's controversial in the light of you know, wanting to, people wanting to teach creationism in schools in America and some of the faith schools in the UK. Uh, we see it's controversial uh, because of the atheists. They, they say they accuse Christians of being anti-scientific or unscientific because of our belief in this book called the book of Genesis. So how do we answer those things and how do we approach this great text and give it credibility but at the same time apply it to a world where there's a lot of skepticism about it. So tonight's message, to be honest, is probably going to be a little bit longer than a normal evening service message. We usually try and keep evening service messages a bit tighter. But I just feel uh, a sense that I've got to communicate certain things to equip you with answers. I feel I have a duty to do that. So bear with us. Hope you've had your coffee. We're ready to go. I'm going to go like a machine gun, so you've switched on tonight. Uh, to help me read the Bible tonight, I have with us some astronauts. So these are the astronauts from Apollo 8. And this is uh, them on Christmas Eve, 1968, as on the moon. And they read for us the verses we're going to be studying this evening. So, cue some astronauts. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament. And divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. 
Happy Christmas and good luck. Genesis chapter 1 starts, the famous, most famous book in the Bible starts with this great declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm just going to take a little bit of time just to camp there for a moment. In the beginning, there was a beginning. Now, not everyone believes that. In fact, historically, atheists argue there was no beginning. Historically, atheists would argue that the universe was eternal. Because by arguing that, then there was no, nothing that caused it to be. It just always has been. The difficulty they had was in roughly 1927, the, the, theory, the Big Bang Theory was published. And it was based on scientific observation. As they observed the universe and they saw the expansion of the universe, the consistent expansion of the universe, they realized that they were watching an effect. And as they charted that back, there was a defining moment at which this whole universe sprung into being. And this scuppered the argument that the universe was eternal. There was a beginning. Science has proven there was a beginning. In the beginning, God... God was at the beginning. C.S. Lewis, speaking about God, said this. God is not the sort of thing one can be moderately interested in. After all, if God does not exist, there's no reason to be interested in God at all. On the other hand, if God does exist, this is of paramount interest. And our ultimate concern ought to be how to be properly related to this being on whom we depend moment by moment for our very existence. Why does anything exist? And why, why does anything exist? I mean, the, the most thoughtful atheist at some point must ask the question, I mean, why did the universe even exist? As opposed to, it never existed. Why did the universe even exist? Why do anything exist? And the answer is, everything exists because of a cause. A cause caused the effects. You don't have an effect without a cause. You have nothing in our frame of reference ever that has ever been without a cause. And yet God, in the beginning, God, God is the one who stands alone, is the one who is uncaused. God is eternal. He always has been, always will be. And while the universe isn't eternal, this being, this creator called God, is eternal. Nothing caused him. He causes all things. He is the source of all life. God's eternal. And the cause of the universe, God, is greater than the universe that he caused. It's interesting, when you think about God, many people in our world reduce him to being a force, like in in Star Wars, you know, the force, and yet an impersonal kind of mystical force. And yet the reality is, how could impersonal create personal? How could intelligent or how could unintelligent create intelligent? So if I was to ask you tonight to think of a color you've never, ever been aware of before. Close your eyes, can I picture a color that you've never, invent a color like that no one's ever seen before. You just can't do it, can you? Because in your head you've got, you know, that's a recognizable color, no, that one. So that's what's going on in my head. You cannot invent a color that no one's thought of. Why? Because it's out with your frame of reference. 
So the question is, how could a God create emotions if he himself didn't have emotions? It would be beyond his frame of reference. How could God create intelligence if he isn't intelligent? How could God create dreams if God himself doesn't have dreams? How could God create... You understand? Intelligence came from intelligence. Morality came from the ultimate moral being. Passion came from a passionate God. It's interesting, it says in Psalm 94 verse 9, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Moses writes Genesis and he says, In the beginning, God. We can only assume it, Moses is believed, it's, it's common knowledge, Moses is the author of Genesis. He lived thousands of years, however long after this point, we don't know, but he lived after that point. He wasn't there when God created the world. That's obvious. How did Moses write Genesis? It's interesting, Moses says, in the beginning, God. He doesn't try and explain proof for God. The reality is, he was probably writing in the beginning God. He was probably writing the book of Genesis. Most likely, he was getting it as he was on Mount Sinai in the very presence of God. The last thing in his mind was, let me try and prove to you his existence. Whoa, I was in the very presence of God when I wrote this. In the beginning, God. And then he goes on and says, in the beginning, God's created We believe in a creator because we look at the creation. You know, you see a world around you that's just beautifully designed. And when you see design, it's obvious that there was a designer. Do you think that a human mind could come up with a world? Do you think, okay, even given a hugely long period of time, you could go away and you could create a world? Now, bear in mind, remember I asked you, imagine a color that never existed. Imagine you could create a world having never experienced or seen an ant or never seen a sunrise or didn't even understand the concept of colors or gravity. You had to come up with, no, from nothing, from literally from nothing, you with your brain had to come up with this design and the intricacy and the delicacy and the balance that you see around us. Could you do it? You'd be very arrogant if you said you could. Even given eternity, could you do it? And yet, intelligent people say that this happened by chance. The truth is, not any one of us, even with our limited intelligence, could come up with what we see around us. We couldn't even come up with the beginnings of it. Because, again, bear in mind, we had no frame of reference. Just from nothing, with no previous experience, you could come up with this. It's almost impossible. All we can assume is that an intellect far greater than any intellect we've experienced could have come up with all this from nothing. And yet, as I say, intelligent minds have concluded that that was luck, that was chance. Folks, that's unintelligent. Sir Frederick Hoyle, the British astronomer and agnostic, he said this, the current scenario of the origin of life is about as likely as a tornado passing through a junkyard beside the Boeing airplane company 
and accidentally, through this junkyard, whipping up and producing a Boeing 747 airplane. That's how likely it would be for this entire world to just to come about by chance. And what we see is not just design, we also see fine-tuning. You know, we're seeing fine-tuning that makes intelligent life possible. And that alone is an evidence of the existence of God. You see, intelligent life depends on a whole complex arrangement of intricate things just happening. We literally live on a knife edge. And if it weren't for the guiding hand of our designer, we would fall over the edge. This is what um, William Lane Craig said. He said, intelligent life depends on a conspiracy of initial conditions that are fine-tuned to the degree that is literally incomprehensible and incalculable. Should any of these factors in the universe be altered with a hair's breadth, then the balance would change and life as we know it would not exist. We're living in a world where literally the complexity and the incredible tension and balance of this life, if anything just within a hair breadth was altered, life would cease to exist. Astrophysicists tell us that life on earth would not exist if, and here's just few of millions of parameters, if the earth's rotation was slower or faster, life would not exist if we were 2% closer or further from the sun. Earth, if it changed and had 1% change in its sunlight exposure, life would cease to exist. Earth, if it was smaller, or Earth, if it was slightly larger, life would cease to exist. The moon, if the moon was smaller or larger, life on earth would cease to exist. The earth's crust, if it was thinner or thicker, life on earth would cease to exist. The nitrogen-oxygen ratio, if it was greater or less, life on earth would cease to exist. And that is, I mean, that's just tip of the iceberg, folks. There's a, a billion complexities and then more beyond that we could never even think of on which our life is dependent and which is only explanation of this complexity is an incredible intellect, God himself, who created this. The other, the other thing we see when we look out is God, in the beginning, God created. We see he created in us morals, objective moral values. Both atheists and theists believe and understand that if there is a God, then there is an explanation for objective moral values. But atheists, if they're honest with you, will tell you that if there is no God, then there is no basis for objective moral values. What do we mean by objective moral values? In other words, your ability to know this is right and that is wrong, and there's no argument. I mean, how can you argue that stuff? But you know you can. You know when something's right and you know when something's wrong. And yet the only explanation for that knowing is you know there's a God. And when atheists argue there is no basis for objective moral values, those same atheists will treat their wives with dignity or they'll get dumped. And they will raise their kids to do good. So I don't care what argument comes out their minds, I know that they live contrary to their argument because in their knower, they know there are objective moral values. So in the beginning, God created But then it goes on, and this is the controversial bit, and it goes on and unpacks in the rest of Genesis how on day one God did this, and day two God did this, and day three God did this. 
So what I'm going to try and do here is I'm going to try and help us as a church understand and be able to grapple with that great chapter, let it impact us and give you a strong basis for your faith in God, the creator. So let's look at the framework we're given. First of all, day one, God created night and day. Day two, God created the sky and the sea. Day three, God created the land and the vegetation. Day four, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, God creates the sea creatures, fish, and birds. Day six, animals and mankind. And day seven, beginning of chapter two now, God rests. And next week as a church, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to rest? So you can't sleep in for that one. You've got to be here. (laughs) So what do these days mean? So here's the dilemma. There was an Ulster man uh, called James Usher from the Church of Ireland, an archbishop of the Church of Ireland, and he proposed the date of the creation. And his date was 404, sorry, 4004 BC. Now he came up with that date based on looking at the Bible, seven literal days plus the genealogies, the family trees that you see in the book of Genesis and through the Old Testament. And he charts it back and says, okay, 4004 BC was the date of the creation of the universe and the world. So here's the dilemma. In contrast, science and astrophysicists say that the universe has existed for billions of years. So are we just to blindly ignore this without any reason or blindly accept this just as blindly? What do days in the Bible mean? It's interesting. We see that this um, debate hasn't just come about since the rise of science. This debate about what do the days in creation and Genesis mean has actually been around for about 1,800 years. Since a couple of hundred years AD, we have church fathers like Oregon and like Clement of Alexander and Augustine and others asking the question, what do these days in Genesis actually mean? They didn't ask that question because of recent scientific discoveries. They didn't ask those questions because they were trying to somehow or another make the Bible mold with science, which doesn't sit right with me, that we would compromise something in order to make it fit nicer. That doesn't sit right. It doesn't seem like integrity. And yet, deep-thinking theologians who were deeply committed to the Bible, not wanting to water the Bible down, but deeply commitment with, to the authority of Scripture, they had these dilemmas, wondering what do these days mean? I would recommend a book, and some of the things I'm going to talk about here are found in this book, and it's by John Lennox, and it's entitled The Seven Days That Divide the Worlds. Fantastic book. And, if, you know, I'm going to cover certain things today. This book will take you further in a journey, and I think it's a very wholesome approach to the book of Genesis. John Lennox points out a number of things. Let me just draw to your attention some things that he points out. And I'm not saying in pointing these things out that I am 100% clear in these things. If you ask me my view on these things, I'm not so sure I know. <laughs> just, just like my view in the book of Revelation. I'm not so sure how it's going to... I know some people are saying it's going to be like this and then this will happen and we'll get this in our heads and all this is going to... Right? I don't know. I, I, uh, are you so sure? I'm not so sure. But I am so sure of God and I am so sure of his Bible. 
John Lennox points out the distinction between Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and verses 3 onwards. He says there's a difference there. Let me read them to you. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. John Lennox said, okay, there's a distinction now. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, so he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, took place before day 1, John Lennox argues. I.e., the question of the age of the earth is an entirely separate question from the question of what do these days in Genesis mean. John Lennox argues that, the, the, that you could quite, under, just given credibility to the Bible, verses 1 and 2 speak of a creation of a world, and then verse 3 is a separate thought. That's what he argues. Our starting point when it comes to all these things is this. Number one, we believe in the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. We believe that God inspired the Bible. We believe that it's his word. We believe it's his authority. And number two, we believe that the same God who authored the Bible also authored this world. Following on from that, I believe that a careful investigation of this Bible, that's called theology, and a careful investigation of this world, which people call science, will draw no contradictory conclusions. Because surely if God authored the book and God authored the world, that an objective, honest, God-fearing investigation of both will bring up no contradictions. Because it's the same author found in both cases. And I think that's a very healthy starting point. It's interesting to know also that the very conviction that God created the world and that there was order in this universe, that very conviction was the thing that fueled our modern scientific era in the first place. Did you know that? That the modern scientific era began by people looking at the creation and saying, there is a God, there is beauty, there is order, let's investigate this. For example, um, Albert Einstein who wasn't so clear on his faith in Jesus, but he is clear that there was the God and that God had created order in the universe. Isaac Newton, one of the greatest scientific thinkers of a previous era, he said this, the most beautiful system of sun and planets and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent, powerful being. That the scientists that burst the modern era of science were inspired to do so and motivated because of their observations of order and beauty in the universe that God had created. So how do we approach the text of the Bible? Okay, well, the Bible is a book. And like any other book, it's done in different genre. So in the Bible, you find there is law, you find there is history, you find there is poetry, you find there is statistics, you find there is pr prophetic literature. It's all in the Bible. And the way you approach each part of the Bible should be done so in a way that gives, does justice to the type of genre or literature it is. 
So I guess the debate comes with, okay, is the days in Genesis literal historical days, or are the days in Genesis somehow pictorial or symbolic, or a combination of the two? You see, you'd be wrong for the author of a math, if you know, an author of a math, mathematics book would think you're crazy if, if you read it and understood it as poetry. Equally, the author of a story would not want you to take it as history. The author intended it in a certain way, and therefore we've got to do our best to understand how did the author intend it. Also, the biblical explanation of the origins of the universe were not written in a scientific way. How could they have been? However long ago Moses wrote the beginnings of the universe in Genesis, he did not write that in a scientific way. If he had of, they would not have been understood in his generation. In fact, even if we wrote in a scientific way 100 years ago, 100 years ago, they didn't understand things that we understand now. So how would it have been possible thousands of years ago for Moses to have written a scientific document about the origin of the universe in a way that thousands of years later people would understand that science? Because it would have been completely ununderstandable because science has been progressive over generations and people have understood things more as generations have passed. Moses, as I said earlier, wrote Genesis. And I believe he wrote Genesis just as John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he saw things about the future. And he said, you know, he saw a lamb in the midst of a throne. Is Jesus a literal lamb? No, but we understand exactly what it's talking about. It's not talking about something that's unreal. It's talking about something that's real. Say real. It's not talking about something that's unreal. The metaphor refers to something, a a reality. So, I mean, is Genesis written in a similar way? It did come by revelation to Moses. How much of it was pictorial? How much of it was historical? And where's the combination? Where did the lines cross? The Bible often uses what is called phenomenological language. Ed does the same. He uses phenomenological language. Phenomenological language is describing things the way we see it. For example, the Bible will say, the sun as it rises and continues and sets in the east. It's describing how people see it. Now, the truth is, both people who believe the Bible and scientists will say, yeah, we see the sun rise. In making that statement, you are not making a statement of your belief of how this universe operates. Because we know that literally, the sun doesn't rise, but rather the earth is turning. What we're saying when they say the sun rises, we're saying we're seeing something. And that is an accurate description of what we're seeing. That's phenomenological language. A scientist saying the sun rises isn't pinning himself down to any belief about the nature of the cosmos. He's just speaking in a way that we understand that people speak. The Bible uses many metaphors. For example, the pillars of the earth, 1 Samuel 2 verse 8. Actually, in, that, in a previous generation, people believed literally the earth was built on pillars. And we look back and think, that's crazy. But we understand when it's saying the pillars of the earth, what it's saying is this, that God has established this planet. There's a stability built into this planet, and he's done it through lots of cosmological ways, and there's lots of things that make it stable, but God is seeing to it. It's like pillars, it's like foundations. It's immovable. Another example would be Jesus saying, I am the door. 
that we understand exactly what he's talking about. He's not talking about something unreal. He's talking about something incredibly real. And if you've met Jesus, you know how real Jesus being the door is. But nevertheless, he's using pictorial language. And then there's the verse in the Old Testament that says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth. <laughs> we think, what? Now we know exactly what it's meaning. It's saying that God's looking. And God's looking for people and God sees. That's what it's saying. But if you have this picture in your mind with these eyes, like flying around the earth like some sci-fi movie, it's probably not what it was meaning. And then now let me go on to talk to you what are the views. With these thoughts in mind, how do people approach the book of Genesis? And let me make a very clear and important point here because I understand there's a variety of people in the room and already some of you have already come to conclusions on these things. I would like to say here that among those who are serious thinking, not liberal, not watering the Bible down, but take the Bible seriously, among people like that, folks like us, as a church, that's where we are, there are varying views which all give credibility to the full authority of Scripture and don't try and water it down. So let me present to you some of those views. First of all, there's the 24-hour day view, or it's kind of literal young earth creationism view. Incidentally, the term creationist used to refer to anyone who believed in the Creator and in the book of Genesis, whereas today creationism specifically refers to this view, which is to do with a literal 24-hour day view, young earth creationism. They believe that um, seven days, 24-hour days, God created the universe, that the universe had its origins about 6,004 years ago. So the question is, was the seven-day week a literal week or, a, or an analogy? And that's, that's something we'll probably never be able to answer this side of heaven. But let me just throw out one of the arguments they use for it, and let me just question the argument. They would say, and to be honest, I have great sympathies for this view. And of all the views, this is, it's not very scientific, I know, but I'm more prone to this view. Call me naive, no problem. But I'm also open to, very open to other views, and I'm very convinced by other views as well. And they argue, okay, it's, it is a literal seven day, and they quote from the book of Exodus, which says in Exodus 20, verse 9, it's talking the law, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. And then they go on and say, for in the six, six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. So they say, there's the example. We know it means a literal seven-day week because when it's quoted in the Old Testament as a law, it refers to our literal seven-day week. And so God, six days work, one day off, same as human beings. So it's a literal seven-day week, they say. But here's the difficulty with that argument. God's work is different to our work. When God worked in creation, it's a word called bara in the Hebrew language, which means to create. That word has never been used in reference to a human being. So his work was different to our work. Secondly, his rest is different to our rest. Because the Bible says he neither sleeps nor slumbers. Yeah, but we do. Some of you are sleeping just now. <clears throat> just let them sleep, they're happy. At least they're sleeping in church. You know, we, we rest differently to how God rests. God doesn't need to sleep. 
We do. So secondly, his work's different to ours. Secondly, his rest is different to ours. Thirdly, God's week is different to our week. Our week is a cyclical thing. Our week comes with another week, and there's another Monday, and there's another week, and there's another Monday, and there's another Monday. We have a cyclical process, whereas God's, his week was a one-off. In fact, when you look in Genesis chapter 2, in all of the days of creation, it says, and there was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. There was evening and morning the third day. But when you come to the seventh day, it doesn't say anything about evening and morning. You're left with a... Augustine, commenting on that, said this. Something great. It's not in my notes. But he said something along the lines of that God on the seventh day made it an epic that would last for all eternity. That that seventh day, many believe, is continued. That he, he does work in the works of salvation, but he has ceased his works and works of creation. That God has entered his rest and has continued in that rest. So Genesis can be interpreted literally from a young earth perspective. Absolutely. But also, Scripture certainly doesn't require people to interpret it that way. And there are other alternatives which equally do justice to the text. So, number one, the young earth creation, the literal seven-day, 24-hour day view. And then secondly, there's the day-age view. Some of you will have heard of this. In which the days of Genesis are actually representatives of ages. Now, you can, you can argue that from the Hebrew language. The Hebrew word for day is the word yom. Say yom. Wow, you're Hebrew scholars. Yom. Yom literally means an age, an unspecified period of time. The day-age view would argue that in chronological sequence, God took certain ages in which he created this world. They argue also from Second Peter 3 verse 8 and various other places in the Bible. It says, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Okay. So let me give you some difficulties with this view just to counteract it and just, just to say how complex these things are. First of all, the translation of the word day isn't consistent even in the book of Genesis. In the chapter 1, it's not consistent. So the first appearance of the word day appears in verse 5 of, he, of Genesis 1. It says, God called the light day, say day, and the darkness he called night. So in that particular moment... What did day refer to? How many hours? Twelve. So that use of the word day refers to a twelve-hour day. The second half of verse 5, Genesis, this is the second time day is used in, in Genesis. Verse 5b, there was evening and there was morning the first day. How many hours is that referring to? Twenty-four-hour day. So now the word day has been used for a 24-hour day. All right, so what one is it? And then in the third use of the word day in Genesis is in Genesis chapter 2 now, verse 2. And it says, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So again, the question we had was, how long has God rested? And it didn't say there was evening and morning that day. And it potentially could, I found the quote from Augustine, here it's here. It was across a page or sliding a screen. Augustine said, God sanctified the seventh day and made it an epic that extends into eternity. And the fourth use of the word day 
is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, which says, This is the accounts of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. In the day. It's like an old man saying, Oh, I remember in the day before computers. He wasn't talking about any particular day. He was talking about an era that he lived in. So there's a fourth use of the word day. And you can compare that fourth use with things like the day of the Lord's. Talking about his judgment day. You find that throughout the Bible. Or the last days. 2,000 years ago, the apostle Peter stood up and said, these are the last days. People are thinking, no, everybody, oh no. Gotta, you know, and they thought, you know, within days, Jesus is going to come back. But we understand it's talking about an era. And then even in, in 1 John 2, it describes, it says, we know that this is the last hour. I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. Been a long hour. However, each of the uses of the word day are to be taken literally and describe something that's real. Say real. It's not fantasy. I don't believe for one moment Genesis chapter 1 is describing a mythical fantasy idea. I believe it's describing accurately, inspired by God's literal, real events. We're just questioning a straightforward, it literally means a day view. And I question that. The third view is the gap theory. Some of you may have heard of that. And they believe that there's a gap between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2. It says, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the, the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's interesting, it says, Now the earth was formless. That, could, that Hebrew word could also be translated, became formless. Some people hypothesize, and I, I don't like reading between the lines in the Bible, to be honest, but some people do, and what they've come up with is that something happens. That there was a creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, there was a devastation, gap, and then there was a recreation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In fact, one guy, John Sinder wrote a novel entitled The End of the Beginning, which depicted a race of angels and their fall. And they argued that that took place before the creation of Adam. And, we, and yeah, we understand there was a fall of the angelic beings with Satan and others before the fall of man. But did it happen between verse 1 and verse 2? Well, that's what people in the gap theory, some of them believe that. I, I'm not sure about that one myself. And then there's D, the framework view. This is the view in which the days exhibit a logical rather than a chronological order. It was put forward by people, again, from a, a generation, not our generation. This is Augustine Clement in Oregon. Oregon, so he, he, he raised a very valid point. He said this, if this was a chronological order, why is it that God created the sun on the fourth day, and yet the three days before that, there was morning and evening? He said, surely you have to have a sun to have a morning and an evening, which is a pretty fair argument. So these guys who seriously believed their Bibles, actually, even before science was a dilemma for them, they said, 
could it be that maybe this isn't a chronological sequence, but rather a logical sequence? Let me give you an example. If you asked, there was a hospital being built, and you asked the, the builder, describe to me the hospital and its construction. The builder would say, okay, we come along, and we clear the site, and we dig the trenches, and we lay the foundations, and then we put the structure in place, and we build the basement with the car parking, and then we build the ground floor with the entrance area, then we build the first floor with the wards, then we build the second floor with the surgery and the, and the, and the, and the, um, the theatres, the operating theatres, and then we build the top floor with more wards. And you would say, okay, that was a chronological description of how it was created. But then you come along a couple of years after it's created, and you ask one of the surgeons who operate on the second floor in the operating theatre, and you ask them, how was this uh, hospital created? And the, ho- and the surgeon might say, well, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, the, the surgeon might say, okay, so we've got the operating theatres on the second floor, and above it we've got wards, and below it we've got wards. Now, was the surgeon lying? No. If you were to take him literally, you might think that there was this second floor floating in space and they kind of built a first floor underneath it and then a second, third floor on top of it, right? It, it was perfectly logical from the surgeon's perspective to describe it that way because that was from the surgeon's perspective, that was exactly a description of his experience of that hospital. It's interesting, there are two triads in Genesis. Let me show you. So you've got day one, day two, day three, the day and the night, the sky and the sea, the land and the vegetation. Then you've got the second triad, the stars, the sun and the moon, the, the sea, the creatures, the fish and the birds, and then the animals and mankind. Day one, God creates the day and the night. And how does he define it? Day four, he puts sun, moon and stars there. Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. What does he put in it? Sea creatures, fish and birds. Day three, he creates the land and the vegetation. And then what does he put in that land and vegetation? Day six, animals, and then distinctively, mankind. So you understand this? They're they're seeing a framework here. They're seeing a pattern. They're seeing that this isn't necessarily a logical sequence, but nevertheless, it is a real sequence of real events. And I think this is exactly a good way of seeing the book of Genesis. Although, again, it's not necessarily my view. And then... Fifthly, there's the, the God speaking on a particular day view. That the days, this, this is what John Lennox suggests might be the case. That the days represent a day in which God actually spoke. That on that day, God spoke. And then there was an indeterminate period of time following that day in which God's word was fulfilled. So God said, let there be light, day one. Now, day two might have happened at another point way, way further after. And he even argues that sometimes those days could have overlapped, where one journey of the unfolding of that previous spoken word happens while another word was spoken. What's our view at destiny? What's my view? Here's our view at destiny. God is the author of the Bible. God is the author of this world. Our view at destiny is that God's word is full authority. He inspired it and we trust it implicitly. And that's as far as our view goes. I know that wasn't helpful, but actually was helpful. 
Because who could, how could I stand up and tell you this is exactly what it means? I know some people do. They say that. Just I ain't that clever. Now, some of you are. But I ain't. But here's what I am clear on. I am clear on the authority of Scripture. So what are the implications and applications of this truth? We're given this amazing truth in the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First implication is this. You and I are accountable. We're accountable. In 2009, the humanist society, along with Richard Dawkins, produced a campaign that went out on 800 buses in England, Scotland, and Wales. And their campaign, the slogan was, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. He's saying lots of things in that. In saying that, he's saying that you can't enjoy your life if there is a God. He's saying that if there is a God, you're going to start worrying. Actually, the truth is totally the opposite if you're on the right side of God. If you've got God as Lord of your life, then the truth is that you can give your worries to him. And you can know the greatest joy ever. But the point he's making is this, and he's making a fair point, and his fair point is this, that if there is no God, then he's right. There are no objective moral values. So the truth is, you can literally live as you want if you do not believe there's a God. He's absolutely right. Here's my question. How far do you take that, Mr. Dawkins? He'll say, oh, no, you can't do these things. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. Your theory, your true theory would say, unlimited, no accountability. It's interesting, Anton LaVey, the famous Satanist, he said this. Do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Very similar to Dawkins' campaign. Just do as you want. Live unaccountable. Dallas Morning News interviewed Tom Cruise and they asked him, why don't you believe in a God? And he answered, because I don't want any moral accountability. That's a brutally honest answer. I wish as many people would be as honest as that. The truth is, if there is a God, folks, you and I are accountable. Every detail of our life is accountable. This world is accountable. This world will be held to account. That there is a morally, absolute, awesome, perfect, incredibly good and glorious God that we are accountable to. Second implication is this. That if there is a creator, then you and I have purpose. Say purpose. You see, if there's no God then literally there is no purpose. That is the logical conclusion of there not being a God. Because there's no designer. You know, for, for a product to have purpose, you've got to ask what the designer designed it for. You don't, there's no such thing as a purposeless product. Bertrand Russell, the atheist, said this, unless you assume a God, the question of life's purpose is meaningless. And he's right. If you don't believe there's a God, then literally, you can, I mean, the best you can do is come up with your own purpose, but it has no ultimate trans, transcendental great meaning. Third implication is this. If there's a creator, you have someone to direct your thanks to. You could be thankful to him. Uh, 18th century painter, poet, 
uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti said this, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. But you, you have to admit, as a human being, we have these overwhelming, welling up moments of gratitude in our soul. And it's completely appropriate for them to be directed towards God. But tragically, the warpedness of our fallenness is that we direct our thanks and our glory and our adoration towards things. And we worship the creation and the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And that the things get our attention rather than God who gave us these things in the first place. And then finally is this. If there is a creator, then you are loved. As a shocking statement in the New Testament where the apostle Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, stands up seven weeks after the crucifixion and speaks to a highly religious bunch of Jewish people, thousands of them, in the very lion's den, Jerusalem. The same place that just seven weeks before they crucified Jesus. And yet Peter stands up in front of thousands of Jewish people who had cast their vote against Jesus. And he said to them in Acts 3 verse 15, you killed the author of life. It's one of the most ironic Bible verses you're going to find. The irony of killing the author of life And the incredible truth we believe is this, that this creator who made this world and this journey we're going to go on in the book of Genesis, you're going to see, we're going to be looking at the fall and the the horrendous effects of sin in this world and yet how God never abandoned this world and ultimately comes to a climax in Jesus where the author of life himself, God, the creator of all things, the one who, the word who was in the beginning, who by whom all things came into being, he spoke and it was. Jesus Christ took on human flesh, entered into human existence, was born of a peasant girl, grew up in a carpenter's home, lived three years where he conquered all the rules of nature that he put in place in the first place. He walked on the water and he raised the dead and he opened the blind eyes and he healed the sick and he taught the multitudes. And at the end of it, they hung him on a cross. But it was the design of God. It wasn't just the corrupt plan of man. And as he hung on the cross, he hung for the sin of the world that had created him. The creation for the, the creator for the creation. The one who made them died on behalf of them. And even while they were spitting in his face as he hung there before his eternal father, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And in that one moment, that one act, the death of the author of life makes it possible for life to come to you. And just as the world at the beginning was formless and void and it was dark, So our lives, which are like that without God, as the Holy Spirit moves in and takes hold of your life, life comes, creation comes. You become a new creation as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the creator of all who died on the cross and rose again. He's alive today. You can know him today. If you don't know him today, I'm not asking you to agree with some argument about God. I'm asking you to open your soul to what you know within your knower to be true, that there is a God, you are accountable to him, there is a purpose in life, and this God loves you so much, he died on the cross and rose again so you can have eternal life. Give me an amen if you believe that. That's the truth. I would die for what I've talked about today. I believe in it with all my heart and soul, and God loves you more than you'll ever realize. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, we say thank you so much 
for the incredible love you have for your creation. Thank you, God, that you have relentlessly, passionately pursued us since the moment you created us, even through the devastation of our sin, even through the horrendous events of history. You have not abandoned this world. Thank you, God. In fact, you so loved the world that you came and you ransomed this world that you died, you died for on a cross to ransom us from our sin, to take away our moral guilt and to make us yours. God, you know everyone in this room. You know us better than we know ourselves. My prayer is, God, that today we would acknowledge you as our creator, that, God, we would walk accountable before God. We would walk with the purpose we were created to have. We would walk knowing that we are loved by a creator who not just made us, but who ransomed us with the highest price ever, the blood of Jesus. So take a moment, folks, just respond to the creator. Take a moment to say thanks to the creator for his creation. Praise him because you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Praise him for the mountains. Praise him for the daffodils. Praise him for the blades of grass. Praise him for your eyeballs. Praise him for your fingernails. Praise him for your ability to breathe in and breathe out. Praise him that he has overseen your life, not just at the beginning, but is with you right now. Praise him that he's in control. Praise him that he's on the throne. Praise him that ultimately one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just while we're praying, maybe today for the first time, or maybe you need to come back to him, why not today commit your life to this God who gave his life for you? The author of life died in your place. So today, do you want to put your faith in Jesus? Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Don't live any more without him being in your life. If you're here today and you're saying, Peter, today I want to commit myself to my creator. I want to be a follower of Jesus from this day forward. If that's you, then I want to help introduce you to him just now. He's here. Just pray a simple prayer, but let it come from your heart. Just repeat this after me. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your love for me. I believe you created me along with this entire universe. I believe you are with me and I believe you have a plan for me. Today I realize that I need you in my life. So Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying because I'm a sinner and you died for me. Thank you for rising again the third day. Thank you that you're alive from the dead. Today I commit myself to you. I believe in you to be my saviour. From now on, with your help, I will follow you. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Thanks for hearing me and accepting me.
you prayed that prayer, I'd like to pray for you. If today that was you saying, okay, from now on I'm God's. And it might be you're saying that because you've never committed yourself to God. Or maybe at some point in the past you made this commitment, you've walked away. But either way, today you're saying, from now on, I'm God's. If that's you, I want to pray for you. Just wherever you are, wherever you are, just raise your hand. If you prayed that prayer, just put your hand up nice and high so I can pray for you. Is there anyone like that downstairs or balcony this morning? Just quickly raise your hand. Thank you. It's great. Anyone else? So, Lord, I pray for this dear lady. I pray, God, that she would know your total acceptance, your total love for her. Thank you, Jesus, you died for her. Thank you, you rose again for her. And thank you, you created her. I pray this would be the beginning of a whole new life with God. Let her know your love. Help her to plug into church. Grow in her faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.